I can picture the boys over there, making plenty of noise over there. Welcome to episode 15 of Fred Talks, where we sit down with the Army JAG Corps historian, archivist, and professor of legal history, Mr. Fred Bork. I'm Major Joel Hood, Marine Corps representative in the Center for Law and Military Operations. That's Clamo. This season, we have been focusing on Mr. Bork's book, Judge Advocates in the Great War. Our discussion today is based on Chapter 5, Judge Advocates in Post-War France and Germany. I'd like to kick off things today by asking you just how long our Doughboys ended up staying over there, Mr. Bork, and what were they doing? Well, uh, hello again, Major Hood, and congratulations on your promotion. I think since uh, we last talked, you have put on some golden oak leaves. So congratulations. And to answer your question... We often forget that although the war, or at least the shooting, stopped on the 11th day of November 1918, um, that doughboys, uh, soldiers, and judge advocates remained in Europe until uh, 1923, with the last judge advocate going home in 1922 because there was a post-war occupation of Germany. So Doughboys were in France and Germany uh, from 1918 and then uh, finally went home in 1923. Well, you mentioned the judge advocates and that they returned home, the last one in 1922, you said, right? So what were the judge advocates doing in the post-war occupation? Well, principally two things. Uh, it might seem a little counterintuitive, although if you think about it, maybe not. And that is that judge advocates were really, really busy with courts martial. In fact, there were more courts martial in the months after World War I than there were during World War I. And I think that's probably because that during the war, soldiers were focused on training, fighting, defeating the enemy. But after the war... They had lots of time on their hands and lots of time to enjoy yeah. the life of France. Mm -hmm. And so I think they were getting in trouble because, like a lot of soldiers in garrison, there's just more time. And the other thing that judge advocates were involved in was paying foreign claims. There were a huge, huge number of claims that had to be paid, and that was because in all the contracting and all the contracts that we had signed with the French to support the war effort, we forgot to put a termination clause. Oh, no. So today, as you know, we have termination for the convenience of the government, as we say, T for C. But back in this era, no one thought about what would happen when the war ended and we no longer needed thousands and thousands of pounds of forage for horses and mules, or fuel for vehicles, or food for soldiers. And all of a sudden, all these contracts, which had been negotiated, were still in force. And there was no way for the government to get out of these contracts, the U.S. government, without paying damages. And so there were millions of French francs to be paid to get out of the contracts. Fast forward, this is a major lesson that judge advocates learned in World War I, so that when we got to World War II or any other conflict, there was always a T for C clause. But courts martial and lots of foreign claim. Got it. Well, let's hone in on the, uh, the courts martial. You said that they actually increased after the, the armistice. 
Were there any notable trials? Uh, I think so. A couple of that I talk about uh, that I discovered in my research for the book. Uh, one of them was we had sort of a uh, an Abu Ghraib kind of uh, mistreatment of inmates at a military prison, and uh, that resulted in a lot of courts martial. This was the Litchfield uh, case out of World War One, I, I think is the name, and the other case that was really a big case, at least one that I think uh, was important, is a, uh, a court-martial of an officer by the name of uh, Malone for murdering a fellow captain. And the facts of this case are that the officer, Captain Malone, uh, was divorced from his wife. He, in fact, had been remarried, and his wife had married a man by the name of Biggs. Now, Malone had never met this Biggs, but he knew his wife had, his ex-wife had married Albert Biggs, and it just turns out that they were in the same area post-war, and Malone decided that he would take revenge on Captain Biggs, whom he blamed for the breakup of his marriage. Somewhat unusual or curious because Malone had remarried and his wife was back home in the States. But nonetheless, uh, Malone got his driver, took a pistol from the arms room, went to where Biggs was uh, living as a quartermaster officer in a quartermaster uh, encampment, and shot and killed Biggs on the spot. Uh, court-martialed uh, at a general court-martial for murder, raised some sort of a defense that uh, I had temporary insanity, maybe I was intoxicated at the time, found guilty, sentenced to life imprisonment, and from what we could find from research, uh, later transferred to the federal penitentiary in Atlanta, Georgia, and spent the rest of his life there. So there were some celebrated cases, thousands and thousands, in fact, in the area, and this would be one of them. Uh, lots of AWOLs as well, a real problem, some larcenies, some thefts, but judge advocates were busy. Gainfully employed, as we say. Well, let's shift gears a little bit and talk about the, the occupation of post-war Germany. Did the U.S. have a part in that occupation? Yes, we did. Uh, there was a British sector, a French sector, and an American sector. And the idea was that we would occupy uh, this part of Germany in case the German high command decided to disregard the armistice and resume the war. So I think we all recognize that an armistice doesn't end the war. It's simply a ceasefire. The same reason that even today on the Korean Peninsula, we do not have a treaty entered the war. We simply have an armistice. Now, it's an armistice that's held for many, many years now, coming up on three-quarters of a century. But in 1918, the German high command, the German government, agreed to an armistice, but General Pershing and others were always afraid that maybe the high command might restart hostilities. So the idea of the armistice was to put some Allied troops on German soil in case the war restarted, and a second reason was to have an occupation so that the Germans could be more easily made to pay reparations, which the Allies intended to demand at what became the Treaty of Versailles. 
so that's why there was a post-war occupation. From the Army's perspective, we did not have a doctrine for how the Army should be used as a governing force in an occupation. Uh, today we do, growing uh, certainly out of our time during World War II. In fact, some of our listeners may know that we ran a military government school at the University of Virginia during World War II while the JAG school was up at the University of Michigan. But in, in World War I, we didn't have a doctrine. So judge advocates immediately were faced with the issues of how do we use the Army in this military occupation. And fortunately, more than a few judge advocates knew that William Winthrop, whose treatise on military law is well known, particularly to criminal lawyers, that Winthrop had a lot of material in his book about military governments in the aftermath of the Civil War. So there were some templates or guidance for a military government. Probably the most interesting part of the military government was the decision that the JAG Corps, the Army, would run inferior and superior provost courts, essentially military commissions. The Germans were allowed to keep their local courts and run their local courts in the occupied area, provided only Germans were involved. If there was an American involved in a dispute with the German, it was handled in the American occupation courts, and obviously if it's American versus American, also handled by our own courts. The big problem in, in discipline for occupation forces was AWOLs, absent without leave, and venereal disease. That was the big indiscipline problem for American troops, uh, but there was also an attempt to control alcohol consumption by German uh, nationals in the occupied area. Uh, you won't be surprised when I tell you that uh, they didn't even try to control German consumption of beer, but they did prohibit the consumption of hard liquor. The occupation went quite well, uh, and uh, initially 200,000 doughboys in the occupation, and by the end of uh, the occupation period when President Harding decided to bring all Americans home, I think we were down to about 1,200. Uh, when we left, uh, the French stayed uh, and moved into our area, uh, which, they remain, which they retained until the 1930s. But the Americans went home January 1923, although the last Army lawyer went home at the end of 1922. Well, I think that takes us to one of our last questions here, which is, what were the big lessons, and maybe you touched on this earlier, the big lessons from Judge Advocate's work in post-war France and Germany? Did we learn about, you know, occupation? Uh, were there any products produced? It's not like Clamo today, where they were writing AARs, or were they? You know, that's a really good question. I, I have not seen uh, a formal lessons learned, but there were certainly after-action reports, and a number of the commanding generals wrote memoirs about their time in the occupation. Certainly, we learned how to run provost courts in an occupied area, and we certainly learned how to deal with the local populations, uh, which I think stood us in good stead in the occupation of Germany, which would happen 
not even 25 years later. As far as the other lesson, it's pretty clear that we learned, at least in contract and fiscal law, you have to have a termination for the convenience of the government. Absolutely. So I think that we often, as Americans, forget about the impact that the lessons of World War I had on World War II. But there really were some huge lessons, starting with which American officers, for the first time, got experience in dealing with large numbers of troops. Remember that the American expeditionary forces at the end of World War I, they're two million doughboys. A huge number when one considers that there were only 125,000 in the regular army at the beginning of World War I. Some of our very well-known general officers, uh, like George Patton, served in World War II. Others certainly got experience there that would uh, really help them in World War II. So there is a linkage, and for the JAG Corps, many, many judge advocates who served in World War I would later serve in World War II. Well, thank you, Mr. Bork. In episode 16, we'll explore biographical sketches of judge advocates in World War I. The views expressed or implied on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the United States Army JAG Corps or other organizations with which the participants are associated or by whom they are employed.